Oh, hi. Welcome to the Cybersecurity Cafe podcast. This is where Louisa and Beverly bring you the experts, the stories, and the research impacting the cybersecurity profession today. Hi, I'm Louisa Vogel and Zhang. Hi, I'm Beverly Roche. Together, we are your co-hosts for the Cybersecurity Cafe. Louisa, tell me about this photometer idea. Ah, well, I've been watching Chernobyl and uh, I got inspired by the Geiger counter that they use to uh, measure the radioactivity. And I thought, wouldn't it be good if we had a photometer? For cyber security. <laughs> so we can pick up on that fear, uncertainty and doubt and, and call it out. And, and Beverly, you know this is something I care deeply about. So how would we apply it? We'd use it at conferences. <laughs> yeah, and we could sort of hold it over some um, brochureware. <laughs> Just, <laughs> we could have so much fun with a photometer. <laughs> I love it. I love it. And... As you know well, Beverly, we know that fear doesn't work. And um, I'm gonna I'm gonna get a little bit serious for a moment and quote a couple of uh, things um, that I've read recently. So this is actually a 2014 working paper from the Global Cybersecurity Capacity Centre, and they reviewed cyber awareness campaigns and why they failed to change behaviour. And they stated, causing feelings of fear to people is not an effective tactic since it will put off people who can least afford to take risks. To make the internet accessible, risks should not be exaggerated. And Beverly, the other thing I was going to mention is a fellow podcaster of ours, David Spark. He wrote a great article about how inappropriate it is to use fear to position a product. And he talked about the fact that CISOs find this really frustrating. And I think we know fear campaigns work on the roads but they don't work in cyber. And I think we're going to hear more about that because uh, we're in great company today as we're going to be joined shortly by Dr. Jessica Barker. Jessica is going to talk to us about scare tactics, fear programs, and users are too dumb to understand cybersecurity and why none of this is working. No surprises. All right, Beverly, let's get on with the chat. Okay, let's welcome Dr. Jessica Barker. We're so excited to have you. Name one of the top 20 most influential women in cyber and has a PhD. And I understand, is it true that when you decided to leave academia, you Googled information security? So, Jess, what happened? Yeah, basically I was approached for a job uh, in cybersecurity and I did not know what that meant at all. My PhD had been in civic design. Um, I was looking at the, the growth of the internet economy. Before that, I'd worked in urban regeneration. I'd studied sociology and politics. So cybersecurity seemed like something, you know, completely left field. And absolutely, I had to kind of sit down and Google it and try and get my head around how, you know, my work and my, my interests could tie into this subject that at first seemed really technical. So what did you think the world of cyber would hold for you when you when you started scratching the surface of it? 
I was really intrigued. I mean, obviously this was kind of nine, 10 years ago. And a lot of what I read was very much about the technical side. So from that perspective, I was kind of confused as to, um, as to what I could bring to the industry and also what was in the industry for, for me to, to really get my teeth into. But also I could see that from a, a government perspective, there was being more emphasis placed on cybersecurity. The UK cybersecurity strategy at the time had not long been out. So, and I could see obviously that it had a huge business impact and it was a really important, um, subject from a business point of view. So I decided to, to, to give it a go. Um, lucky enough to get this opportunity. And, um, it meant I spent the first year in the job, you know, having to learn a great deal, getting some amazing opportunities. And, and so I just found that every day there was something new or many things new for me to learn. And during that first year, I really started to get my head around how my perspective and, and some of my work in the past and my interests actually really did have a great deal of relevance to cybersecurity in terms of human awareness, behavior, culture, how organizations act and think and, and behave. Can you tell us a little bit about the psychology of fear and what that has to do with cybersecurity? Can you talk yeah. to us about that? Sure. It's something that I find really interesting because obviously when we talk about cybersecurity, we're usually talking about something scary. And I had, I did a lot of awareness raising in my first uh, few years in the industry. And I wanted to think about whether, whether we could do awareness raising without kind of tapping into that fear. And I realized, well, actually, whenever we talk about this stuff, usually we do have to talk about the threats and we are inherently talking about something that's going to scare people a bit. Um, so then I wanted to understand, well, actually, how do people respond to a fear-based message? And how can we talk about this stuff that, that's in a constructive way? Because sometimes I saw it being spoken about in a way that I could see was, was putting people off. So I did some research and a lot of reading into the psychology of fear and came to understand actually it's really important how we talk about something scary because if we talk about it in a way that doesn't take care of, of the psychology of the individual we're talking to, then actually we are more likely to drive more negative behaviors. So if we try to simply scare people and think that that's going to make them behave in a certain way, the likelihood is that actually it's going to put them off engaging with us. We need to really focus on the empowering message, on the behavior that we, we want to see people change and make sure that people feel that they are capable of that behavior, you know, whether it's changing their passwords or setting up two-factor authentication, you know, not clicking on links in emails. We have to make sure that the recommendations are appropriate, that they, we communicate why they'll work and also that people are capable of engaging with them. I think that that's a really fascinating point because we started out with phishing simulations and treated people really badly when they clicked on links and it's only recent in recent times that we've started realizing that this is a great learning opportunity it's not a negative that we need to get inside those behaviors have you done some work around getting inside those behaviors in terms of the messaging so what's in it for me why should I understand why it's important and how can I use these things in my personal life 
Yeah, I think that last point is really fundamental. Um, making sure that our communications are relevant to the person we're speaking to. And um, for a lot of people, that can be talking about their personal lives, talking about when they're using the internet at home, you know, how they communicate with family members, you know, whether it's children or siblings or parents. Um, and when we talk to people about their personal use of uh, technology and how they can have better security, what I generally find is then people are able to take that mindset and apply it in the workplace as well. So whenever I do awareness raising, I will, I will touch on the personal side of this, but I will also try to understand, you know, from the perspective in the, of the people in the room, as you said earlier, what's in it for them? How am I going to tap into their intrinsic motivation? Because that's what really leads to deep behavioral change. So if I can understand what their jobs are, where the pain points are in terms of security in their jobs, how we can have security that actually is not a blocker to them, but is something that they're actually able to engage in without it, um, you know, having an impact on their productivity, then these are all of the key things that um, will be so much more impactful when it comes to changing behaviours. And have you seen some great examples of, so, you know, we started some of these programs and we found that if we didn't have the right people from an executive perspective supporting us then we really lost traction we were able to get small groups so you some of the things that you talk about how brilliant it is to have cybersecurity champions and ambassadors do you use those individuals as vehicles to help permeate through the organization have you seen really good success around that I have. And I think actually the most successful champion programs that I have seen and worked on, they do use the champion network to help spread uh, messages of security. But more importantly, I think they use the champion network to listen to the organization as a way of taking feedback on what's working with security, what's not. Um, because usually most people don't want to act in a, a way that, that harms security in their organization organization. But most people do that because for whatever reason, the practice, the policy doesn't fit in with their way of working. It's actually a blocker to them. So when the organization can use the champion network to listen to the to other people, when we can use the champion network to understand why security is not operating in the way you'd want in certain parts of the business, then you're able to identify, you know, what technology you need to roll out to support people, how you need to look at the policy um, to make sure it's fit for purpose for everybody in the organization. And, you know, to quote or to paraphrase the UK National Cybersecurity Centre, security works when it works for people. So being able to listen to the people in the organization is a way of making that security work for them. And then it's going to work for you. I still, I think that's fantastic. I still find though, and I don't know whether you found this, is getting those pro, getting your arms around those projects that can drive this, you know, and it's usually something, I, I think some of it might fall into the difference between how we're progressing. Um, we all like to think that we're ahead. And so, our people go to conferences in the US like RSA and come back and go, oh, we're so far behind. And then when you look at what we're actually doing, you go, oh, 
not really. I'm seeing the same behaviours here. I do get a little bit of a sense, though, that the NCSC has been driving down through societal behaviours. So I think there's a lot more people that seem to really understand that messaging. Are you looking around the globe at those where you think you sit with that? Yeah, I mean, I do find... Um that the UK NCSC has been because they focused very much on this kind of people first message and very much having um, mm. a message around people centric security that that for me is an indication of maturity so organizations you know they differ greatly even within one country but for me what really marks an organization out as having more mature cybersecurity is when they take that more positive uh, people focus you mentioned earlier about you know whether people are blamed for clicking on a link in an email. And that will be an indicator for me, whether it's something that that an organization blames someone for, or whether, as you said earlier, it's identified as a learning point and it's actually used, you know, to maybe drive more targeted training. When organizations send out, um, you know, these phishing simulations, whether people are, you know, whether the, the results are interpreted at the end as, you know, 20% of people clicked on the link and that's terrible versus, whether the communication is actually 80% of people didn't click on the link and that's really good. You know, let's, let's increase that number next time. That those for me are indicators of, of maturity in an organization of whether there's a positive tone or a negative tone, whether there's a culture of fear or a culture of learning. These are the things for me that really mark organizations out. Mm. And in your day job, you were doing quite a lot of work around measuring and improving culture. Have you got something that you can share with us around is it NIST is it how you you know without giving away all your IP is there (laughs) something you can kind of tell us a bit about so we talked about some of the behaviors that we need to see are there frameworks are there other things that you use to to measure those things is it a questionnaire one thing I do in my day job is cultural assessments of organizations. And for that, I have, I've built an eight area model of cybersecurity culture in organizations. And I will go into the organization. I'll run focus groups. I'll really give the end users a chance to talk about security. And, and actually people have left my sessions more than once uh, saying like it felt like therapy because they really get a chance to, um, and usually it's kind of the first chance where they can actually get into detail over where security is working for them, but where it's not, you know, where the messages make sense and where they don't, where they, where they feel confused or where the practices that we're, we're trying to ask them to follow actually are just not feasible in terms of their job role. So I'm able to then understand actually what the culture looks like and why, why people aren't engaging in certain behaviors and then look at actually, you know, what do we want the culture to be? What is the policy and how can we bring these things closer together? So that's something I've been working on for the last couple of years. And actually it's Igenta. It's really interesting. I find it really interesting. You know, organizations always differ, but there's usually some themes as well. And yeah, at Sygenta, we've actually, we're just about to launch a product with a Canadian partner of ours to scale this up a bit because at the minute it's very, 
it's a labor intensive program of work. So looking to make this something on a, on a bigger scale. But in general, what I'd say about culture is it's really important to think about what culture do you want and what behaviors would represent that culture. And okay, how do we raise awareness around those behaviors? So kind of working back from culture, if you're thinking about how to shape your awareness messaging. Yeah, because that's the interesting thing, isn't it? You know, talking, speaking to the audience in a way that they really understand is shaping that messaging and also aligning to their, their company culture. You know, having worked in lots of different sectors myself in the mining sector, the messaging's so different from the banking sector. Mm -hmm. And, you know, some of them are much more mature around some of these things because they've been working, you know, there's a lot of regulation. So some of that kind of changes as well, doesn't it? Yeah, absolutely. And it's really important to understand that because if we try to fit a model, you know, on a culture that isn't, isn't, it isn't going to work for, then, um, it's actually going to put people off. They're going to feel like, well, obviously, security or, you know, whoever it is, this external consultant, whoever it might be, obviously doesn't understand the business. They don't understand what my job is. And so this isn't relevant for me. I'm not going to engage in it. So it's really important to try and always come at this subject from the perspective of the organization, of the individuals in the organization. And then you'll find that it's much more harmonious. Sensational. Can we just move a little bit to this research, this research that you did with Palo Alto Networks and your Gov, YouGov, is it called, pardon me, about yes. trust in the digital age? Because I think that plays really nicely into trust and getting messaging right and getting people to understand that the digital age is here to stay and the sooner we help them understand the what's in it for them. Can you tell me, unpack that a bit for us? Sure. Yeah, I did some research with Palo Alto and YouGov um, here in the UK and actually around the world. And what we found in the UK is that 68% of people think they're actually doing all they can to protect themselves online. And that's a, a really interesting finding. It was much higher than I actually expected. Um, and, you know, maybe that's because people are doing all they can to protect themselves online. Um, or maybe that's relevant to the optimism bias. You know, the fact that actually most people will be optimistic about their own personal lives. Um, so maybe people, you know, feel more optimistic about their level of cybersecurity than the reality. We did find that the older generation was more confident in their cybersecurity than the younger generation. You know, they, older people in general thought that they were doing more, um, than younger people felt. So that was a very interesting finding, you know, perhaps that's because that demographic are more likely to have been through awareness raising training, um, in the workplace than younger people. Perhaps it's because the older generation is more cautious about risks. Um, but it, whatever the reasons, I think it shows that we need to consider that level of confidence when we're communicating with people. Because if people think that they already know what we're going to tell them, then we can't speak to them as if we're the experts and they're not. We have to be aware that actually there is a level of confidence there. So we need to avoid being patronizing with people. Oh, yeah. Look, that patronizing behavior really 
it just has to end, doesn't it? We really are not being helpful to our own cause by, you know, treating them as if, you know, they know nothing about it. Yeah, absolutely. I think that kind of us, us and them um, approach, which we often see with security, you know, and where we, we sometimes hear people in the industry speaking in a really negative way about end users, you know, the users, the weakest link, this kind of thing, really off-putting. And as you say, I think it's, it's very damaging to our efforts in security because it's, it's just going to put people off from listening to us, coming to us with questions, coming to us with incidents. It, it creates a really big barrier. It's interesting, this number, because I'm comparing this optimistic 68% and trying to relate that to a recent interview that we did with a company called ID Care, which is a not-for-profit in Australia. And currently, Australians lose $3 billion off our bottom line in scams, fraud. So it says that there's something not quite matching here that I, I'm if I know that's the UK number, but I think if we did something similar, I'm wondering whether people would tell us that, oh, no, we've got it covered, we know what we're doing, we feel like we understand what we're doing in a digital age, yet we're seeing so much, you know, we're one of the, well, you're one of the countries of choice, but Australia um, is one of the five countries of choice for cyber criminals. Mm-hmm. So we really, I think we I mean, sounds like we've got a lot of work to do. I think we're doing a good job around the corporate world, but I don't think that we were really pushing out into the broader society because our senior citizens would tell you that they're not digital savvy at all. Yeah, I think it's, um, I, I see it in a lot of countries, whereas you'll say on a, on a corporate level, there will be more emphasis, more communications, but actually for individuals, for, you know, people at home, there, I think there is often a gap. Um, and I do, I find when I do awareness raising training for companies that people will come up at the end and they'll ask me about personal security issues because they'll feel like, you know, they don't know where else to go. I mean, obviously they can Google it, but they're likely to get lots of different answers. They may not, you know, they may not feel confident with all of the answers. Um, so I think there often is that, that gap, you know, that vacuum of, of where do people go if they, if they think their Gmail or their Hotmail or their Instagram or their Twitter has been hacked, where do they go with those kind of personal worries? Um, but I also think that, that people, I mean, this research certainly showed that people felt more confident than I expected. But then when I thought about it, it did, it did kind of make sense because I often see this from organizations as well, that actually there will be this, you know, why would hackers want my data kind of mentality? And often people won't think that they would be targeted, you know, without understanding that a lot of cybercrime isn't targeted in that way. Um, so then I'll find that there can be this false level of confidence um, at an organizational level as well as an individual level. And for me, I, I do think this might be where sort of the optimism bias comes into play, which has been proven by neuroscience that actually 80% of people around the world, um, regardless of country or um, you know gender or ethnicity or age, 80% of people feel optimistic about their personal lives. They think the bad thing will never happen to them, um, whether it's illness or divorce or maybe cybercrime. 
That's really interesting. So it's that balance about what you were talking about earlier, about not fear, but the reality is and the relatability is that this can happen to you and we're going to prepare you just in case. Does that work? Is that something yeah. that we need to do? I find that really effective. A lot of our awareness raising sessions will include live demos of attacks, you know, whether it's spear phishing or, you know, man in the middle or uh, password cracking, we'll usually do live demonstrations of, of the kind of threat that we're talking about. And what I find is it, that's really effective. You know, it really does mean that people actually understand how this stuff works. Because so often, if we talk about it in theory, um, if people are not really uh, computer savvy, if they don't really um, understand how computers actually work, then you know, telling them that, oh, if you click on a link, then your computer could be taken over, you know, your webcam could be turned on, your microphone. That all sounds like, well, how does that actually happen? So when you can walk people through it step by step, then it, it really demystifies how these kind of attacks take place. But with that, you do have a responsibility um, of ensuring that people don't go away scared you know you want yeah. people to engage in the danger which is the actual threat and not the fear which is the emotion and so that's when it's so important to make sure you you give people the empowerment you help them to understand actually what steps they need to take why those steps will be effective and they need to be steps that people can engage in they need to be realistic they need to be proportionate they need to be accessible to the individuals so if we simply try and scare people, but we don't have a solution for them, um, then actually they're just going to bury their head in the sand. They're going to go into avoidance, reactance, you know, and they're not going to actually engage with, with some of the messages we're trying to convey. And haven't we created a lot of messaging? <laughs> you know, we haven't got the passwords one sorted yet. You know, oh, I know. You know, I yeah. know hear about no. passwords a lot. Yeah, they're a big that's pain the killer. Point. That's mm. that. That's the uh, that's the tricky one. That's really the tricky one. Look, I can't thank you enough for just all your fabulous insights. How do people get in contact with you? So you can take a look at our website, cygenta.co.uk, or find me on Twitter at Dr. Jessica Barker. I can't thank you enough for joining us today. It's been and a pleasure. And we look forward to talking to you again in the future and finding out how things are progressing in your world. Thanks, Absolutely. Jessica. Well, thank you. I've really enjoyed it. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Beverly. That interview was so insightful. Fantastic job. And uh, I would love to hear, Beverly, what your pertinent kind of takeaways from that now you've had a chance to digest everything that Jess said. I think the first one is how people can come to our profession from other professions and bring so much knowledge to it and help us solve and address some of these issues. I thought that was really insightful. I think the other thing is this whole psychology of fear for me, we've known about it, but we kind of needed experts to validate some of that thinking and how it's just not a good motivator to get our workforce on board. I think the other thing I really liked was 
I've always thought that having cyber ambassadors, ah, oh, nice to have, but she's really promoting them as a means of listening to the workforce. I thought we needed them to amplify our messages. And so for me, that was really interesting because it's actually the feedback to then amplify the messages. So I thought that was really brilliant. Um, what else did you, what did you pick up on it? I really, like you, the fear piece was, was really interesting. And I love the way she explained that, you know, fear's an emotion and, and that's not you know, the best thing to uh, take action on. It's you educate people about the danger and then you tell them what they can do about it. Mm. And that's very different to just spreading a message of fear and kind of dropping the mic and leaving people with that. Any other points? Oh, the other thing I took away was that really insightful research. It's a real kind of aha moment for me around the fact that I think it was 68% of people believed they were doing everything they could to protect their data online. And that optimism bias that Jess talked about, that was so helpful to understand that because when we talk to people about cybersecurity, you know, again, sometimes that patronizing language is being used. But really, you know, we're starting from a point where they believe they're doing everything they can. So they're almost closed to what you have to say already. So it's how do you understand that psychology and then start the conversation from a different point? Yeah. Look, I think that is probably all that we can say about it today. We'd love your feedback and um, any suggestions and ideas that you'd like to hear on the podcast. Thanks for joining us and speak to you next time. Thanks for listening to the Cybersecurity Cafe podcast. Be sure to subscribe for future episodes and for more information, visit cybersecuritycafe.com.au and find us on Twitter at CyberSEC Cafe.